Well, good morning and welcome to Christ Church. I'm Pete Stearns and I'm our pastor of family ministries here. We're in the midst of the series called The Blacklist in which we are examining the villains of the gospel narrative. And as we have studied the lives of these characters, we've begun to recognize that their faults, their failures, their shortcomings, and their sins actually resonate fairly closely with our own. We looked at the legalistic Pharisees a few weeks ago and asked ourselves, where are we allowing our desire to do the right things get in the way of leading a life devoted to God? We looked at Caiaphas last week, this this power-hungry priest that could not recognize his Savior right before him. But this week, we're turning out of the Jewish tradition and looking at King Herod. And I'm sure you feel slightly relieved because while we might be able to resonate with religious leaders and and followers that didn't quite get it all figured out, surely there is nothing with this tyrant king that could be challenging to our lives. Well, I am a personal fan of crime dramas and, and something that every good detective in a crime drama does when trying to catch a killer is they study his family background. They look at the way that he has been raised because in understanding his context for his birth and, and how he has been raised, they begin to understand his motivations. Well, we're going to do that today with Herod. Now, Herod's father was named Herod, his brother was named Herod, and his other brother was named Herod. So it gets a little bit confusing because he's kind of got this George Foreman-ish family. But we're going to be talking for a moment about Herod the Great, King Herod's father. Okay, are you tracking with me? Herod the Great. So Herod the Great was known as one of the most notoriously evil men that has ever walked this earth. His legacy was defined by his violence and his unimaginable vitriol. You see, as Matt alluded to, Herod the Great was the one that was so threatened by an infant Messiah that he ordered the execution of all babies under the age of two in Bethlehem. Well, while that is horrible enough in its own right, it pales in comparison to the other atrocious acts he committed throughout his life and reign. Because historians and theologians believe that based off of the censuses in Bethlehem of that year, that the number of babies that he executed were probably 6 to 12. That's how many family members Herod killed because they were a threat to his throne. In his final week, Herod was laying in his deathbed. And as he recognized that his demise was imminent, he began to think about his favorite son becoming his successor, the rightful heir to his throne. But the thought of even his favorite son sitting where he had sat his entire life threw him in such a fit of rage and jealousy that he had him executed on the spot. You see, he was defined by his desire to squash the Hebrew people. He made sport of hunting down and killing their religious leaders, murdering some 45 Pharisees in order to make a statement of power and authority 
to the people that he governed. As he was preparing for his death, at the end of his life, he fell gravely ill. And days before he breathed his last breath, he recognized that he was not going to be remembered very well. And that, in fact, upon his death, it was likely that the people that he had governed would actually rejoice and celebrate in the streets. And that didn't sit well with him. And so you might assume that somebody whose legacy has been defined by his violence would try to rewrite the script in those last few days. To make a charitable offering to the Hebrew people so that he might be remembered in a more favorable light. But not Herod the Great. Instead, he ordered his soldiers to round up the most beloved people in all of the communities that he governed. The religious leaders, those that were working on the behalf of the poor, those that had families that were cared for and that were seen as the model citizen. And he had them rounded up into a stadium and he gave the command that upon his final breath, they would be executed. Why? Because that would guarantee that the land he governed would be in a state of mourning upon his passing. Now you can imagine, with a father like this, that King Herod was a little bit messed up. He might have had a few daddy issues that needed to be worked out in therapy, and and you wouldn't blame him if he himself actually Uh, developed this same violent tendency and built a legacy of evil rather than good. But the truth of the matter is that history doesn't remember King Herod that way. History remembers King Herod as one of the most savvy politicians in Roman Empire history. He was known as someone that had an adept skill in promoting compromise and bringing the Hebrew people and the Roman Empire to drastically different cultures together in a peaceful reign. He served as the governor of Galilee for an unprecedented 43 years. And during his time, unlike other regions in the area, the Israelites were thriving. Unlike other governors and kings that taxed the Israelites to the point of destitution, his people were living well and comfortably. Many uh, Roman leaders, when they came into a new place of leadership, would immediately destroy the temples of the incumbent leaders and peoples and develop their own temples to worship their own pagan gods, but not King Herod. Instead, he actually sought to help the Israelites rebuild their temple in Jerusalem. You see, many of them would immediately mint coins with their likeness on them so that every single time you went to purchase something, you would remember who you followed. But you see, King Herod made it a point to meet with the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the Israelite people and discuss their laws and their expectations. And he realized that it would be taboo to print his likeness in metal because of the Israelites' suspicion of idols. And so every coin minted during those 43 years has not the face of Caesar or Herod on it, but instead palm fronds. 
You see, he was a leader that cared about his people and wanted to promote peace in his region. He wanted to appease the Roman Empire, but at the same time, he wanted to be loved by his constituents. You might be thinking that this doesn't seem to resonate with your recollection of Herod from Sunday school. And you're right. Because scripturally speaking, King Herod is remembered as a tyrant, as a murderer, as the man responsible for beheading the greatest prophet of the Israelite tradition, as a man who sent our Savior to the cross. And so today, we need to examine this discrepancy and ask ourselves why mankind remembers Herod so favorably, but God seemingly remembers him as a member of our blacklist. You see, I would like to propose today that it is actually because of and not in spite of Herod's propensity to compromise his convictions in order to appease the crowds that he is remembered in such an extreme juxtaposition. And so we will begin by looking at his story of scripture as he meets Jesus in the throne room on trial. Now, just as a reminder, Jesus has been betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane by his disciples. He has been accused by the Sanhedrin and the religious leaders of the Israelites. He has been sent to Pontius Pilate. And Pontius Pilate governs over a little bit larger territory than Herod. But he recognizes that Herod seems to be fairly adept in handling issues of religious sensitivity with the Hebrew people. And so instead of trying him himself, he sends Jesus to Herod. And Jesus enters into the throne room of King Herod. Luke 23, verse 8 says this. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased because for a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. Now, I find this passage uh, intriguing because Herod seems to be like a child on Christmas morning or a middle schooler who is about to meet their sports hero. He is giddy with excitement. He can't wait to see and meet this Jesus. But why is a Roman official so curious about a religious leader that has been wandering in the desert? Well, we mentioned before that Herod had executed John the Baptist. And if we leave it at that, we miss out on the nuance here. Because when John the Baptist began preaching against the actions of Herod, it would have been completely understandable in the time for Herod to immediately have him executed. But instead, Scripture tells us that Herod recognized something in John the Baptist that he respected, and so instead of executing him, he simply arrested him. Scripture also tells him that during his time of imprisonment, John the Baptist was visited regularly by his followers, and so obviously Herod was making some special exceptions for this religious leader. 
We also, as we read closely in scripture, recognize that it says that Herod actually spoke with John the Baptist often. And while he was perplexed by his message, it says he liked to listen to him. And so we can assume that during his imprisonment, John the Baptist actually was called into the throne room of Herod to speak with him, to talk with him, to develop a relationship with him. You see, I think that Herod had a certain level of spiritual curiosity, one which led him to treat the Hebrew people favorably and also one that led him to invest in relationship with somebody that was mocking him in his region. You see, Herod only killed John in a moment of weakness when his wife had tricked him into promising to do so in front of a large crowd of influential people. Herod's hands were tied. Surely if he refused and instead elevated this prisoner above his wife, his position of authority and leadership would begin to crumble. And so scripture tells us that upon beheading John the Baptist, Herod was greatly distressed. I imagine that during their time together, John the Baptist told Herod about a coming savior, one that was the Messiah, one that would perform a great number of miracles. And I assume that Herod kept his eyes out for him. And upon seeing Jesus in his throne room, made the leap of faith to assume that this was the man that his friend had told him would be there. And so Herod, probably thinking of making atonement for past sins, tried to give Jesus every opportunity to let himself off the hook. In front of a large crowd of people, perform a miracle that proves you are the Savior. Answer my questions. Let me understand. But Jesus remains silent. Jesus refuses to answer the king's inquiries. And I wonder what happens next. If you were just to shout out what you think Herod's response is, what does Herod do when Jesus refuses to speak? Just shout it out. Yeah, he gets angry. A lot of people assume he gets angry. That's what we've come to understand from this narrative. That's what we've been told in Sunday school, that Herod, upon realizing that this religious leader standing before him refuses to recognize his authority and power and remain silent, he must throw a fit of rage that sends Jesus to the cross. But scripture doesn't seem to be too concerned with Herod's emotions. In fact, there is nowhere in the Bible or in history that tells us that Herod has an emotional response to Jesus' refusal to speak. Instead, Luke, the author, makes a very interesting pivot in light of what we know about King Herod. And so we look back into the passage, and verse 9, we'll recap. He plied him with a sign, of, or he plied him to perform a sign of some sort. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. Then here's the pivot. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. I find it peculiar 
that Luke turns away from Jesus, he turns away from Herod, and instead addresses the angry crowd standing in Herod's throne room. We know that Herod has developed a legacy upon compromising his convictions in order to please his constituents. And here we see a picture of a man who is eager to meet Jesus, but is surrounded by a crowd of people that are screaming for his head. And so Herod, in verse 11, then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. Herod seemingly obliges the crowd. But interestingly enough, he doesn't actually condemn Jesus. He keeps his hands clean of that. Instead, he does what a middle schooler does when a circle of people are taunting and bullying their friend. He joins in with the crowd so that he will not be the next in the circle. He puts a robe on him. He embarrasses him. He panders to the crowd around him. You see, Herod is willing to compromise conviction in order to please people. And I think it is powerful in contrast to how Jesus responds while surrounded by the same crowd, refusing to live into the expectations of those around him, but instead staying faithful to his calling on earth. Now, you might be rolling your eyes a little bit internally to say, all right, you got me, Pete. I'm a people pleaser too, but not like this. I mean, I've I've told a little white lie here or there, but I would never seek to please the crowd at such a level that I would have someone beheaded, that I would send the Savior to the cross. Certainly, this is an extreme comparison to be making. Yes, in my day-to-day life, I want the affirmation of others, but when it comes down to the very most crucial moments of my life, I will remain faithful to my convictions, unlike Herod. Well, I want to challenge that assumption for a moment. Because Jesus is not standing in Herod's throne room because Herod has condemned him. Jesus is not standing in that throne room even because the Pharisees have condemned him. The Pharisees have at least stayed true to what they believe even if it's the wrong thing. Jesus is standing in that throne room because people like you and I remained silent when a vocal minority screamed for their Savior's head. You see, we just have to rewind four days to see the reality of this truth play out. Jesus has just come to Jerusalem and he is in the temple and he is preaching and he is teaching and he is performing miraculous signs and the Pharisees begin to become concerned. They grow more and more agitated as he teaches in their temples. And they begin to sling accusations at him. They begin to call him a heretic a blasphemer, and they call for his head, and they bring him to trial. Well, if we look at this point in the temple, as the Pharisees are screaming out that Jesus is a blasphemer, that he is a heretic, 
It says, yet at the same time, many, even among the leaders, believed in Jesus. But because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved human praise more than praise from God. You see, if these men and women in the temple, ordinary people like you and I, had stood up for their convictions, had recognized that their beliefs were pivotal in this moment, then Jesus never would have stood trial. Jesus never would have hung on the cross. But they, having witnessed God actually walking before them, actually performing miracles with their very own eyes, betrayed him. Because scripture tells us they loved the praise of man more than praise from God. Suddenly I feel a little bit more uncomfortable. You see, because I am a people pleaser. I seek the affirmation of the crowd. And sometimes in seeking the affirmation of the crowd, I toe the line of morality. I mean, who of us in here has not told a juicy little secret to a friend in quiet because we wanted them to lean in and think that we were in the know? How many of us have had one too many at the office party because we didn't want them to think of us as that religious coworker? Who has told a little white lie because it was a whole lot easier than explaining the whole truth? How many of us have purchased homes and cars and accessories that seemingly appease the expectations of our culture but leave us unable to support the mission and kingdom of God? You see, it was really challenging this week to think of an example that really resonated. I was racking my brain all week. Where has been a time that I have done this that will stand out that everyone will say, me too? And I realized that I couldn't because it just happens so often. This week there have been 15 times that I have pleased people instead of God. That I have sought the affirmation of my colleagues, my coworkers, and my friends and not my Savior. And for the most part, Each one of those times seems trivial and insignificant, easy to justify. And we find ourselves over and over explaining that it's not really that big of a deal. That little thing, don't worry about it. It didn't impact them. It didn't hurt anybody. It's just how we go about living our day-to-day life. You see, it's so ingratiated into our cultural understanding of how we live that we simply don't even recognize it anymore. And we make the assumption that in comparison to the other sins in our life, it's inconsequential. Like, sure, I please people. And I make these little compromises that seek affirmation of others and not God. But in comparison to some of the stuff I've actually done, This is nothing. Well, C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite theologians and authors, says something very poignant about this concept. Uh, In his book, The Screwtape Letters, 
Uh, C.S. Lewis essentially tells a narrative of a senior demon and uh, one of his junior devils. And this devil has been assigned to a new believer. And they are corresponding back and forth as to the best way to take this newfound Christian and knock him off the course. They are trying to talk about strategies and putting stumbling blocks and temptations before him so that he cannot make an impact in the kingdom of heaven. And about halfway through the book, there is this turning point, this climax that I think is particularly challenging. And I'm going to read a few paragraphs of this. So as I'm reading it, I want you to listen and listen for how this speaks to our desire to please people in the seemingly insignificant ways in our life. It says, My dear Wormwood, who is the junior devil, the senior devil is speaking here, obviously you are making excellent progress. My only fear is lest in attempting to hurry the patient, the Christian, you awaken him to a sense of his real position. For you and I, who see that position as it really is, must never forget how totally different it ought to appear to him. We know that we have introduced a change of direction in his course, which is already carrying him out of his orbit around the enemy, or Jesus. But he must be made to imagine that all the choices which have affected this change of course are trivial and revocable. He must not be allowed to suspect that he is now, however slowly, heading right away from the sun on a line which will carry him into the cold dark of utmost space. For this reason, I am almost glad to hear that he is still a churchgoer and a communicant. I know there are dangers in this, but anything is better than that he should realize the break he has made with the first months of his Christian life. As long as he retains externally the habits and behaviors of a Christian, he can still be made to think of himself as one. Sorry, there. He can still be made to think of himself as one who has simply adopted a few new friends and amusements, but whose spiritual state is much the same as it was six weeks ago. And while he thinks that, we do not have to contend with the explicit repentance of a definite, fully recognized sin but only with his vague, though uneasy, feeling that he hasn't been doing very well lately. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, and without signposts. You see, what Lewis is saying here is that It is actually far more dangerous to suffer from consistent yet insignificant sin than it is to find ourselves victim of one large painful sin. You see, because when I sin in a way that truly hurts somebody and in turn hurts God, it's fairly easy for me to recognize my shortcoming and immediately seek repentance that brings about reconciliation and restoration and redemption. But when I am in the habit of constantly compromising my convictions in order to seek affirmation from others, I'll never reach a point that says, oh wow, I've got to turn back. Instead, I'll find myself 
in a constant reality of feeling like there's just something off about my faith. I'm just not doing very well right now. Man, I need to get back onto the bandwagon. I need to read my Bible more. I need to go to church more. I need to solve this with the external habits of a Christian rather than addressing the fissure that has been created in our relationship with God. And C.S. Lewis says that it is in these small fractures that we actually turn and walk completely away from our Savior. So I want to challenge us this week to ask yourself the question, are you unequivocally living for the praise of God? Or are you tempted to compromise your faith in order to receive the affirmation of your friends, your family, your co-workers, your classmates. Because we need to be reminded that human account of history remembers Herod as a hero. Yet God's account of history remembers him as a villain. How will we be remembered? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we confess to you that we so often seek the affirmation of our friends, our colleagues, our co-workers, of those around us, well before we seek out the affirmation and praise of you yourself. Lord, we admit that we have done this so regularly and with such great frequency that we honestly don't even think of it as a sin. Lord, we assume because it is trivial and insignificant that it has no bearing on our relationship with you. While meanwhile, the roots of our faith have eroded beneath us. Lord, today as we sit and confess to you, we pray that we would own our tendency to seek the praise of man. And Lord, that we would begin to become convicted that we ought to pursue your glory and yours alone. We pray this in your name. Amen.